Lovely listeners, I am back. <laughs> Welcome to the British Whisperer again. And it's the place to be to know which stories are making the headlines and the English you need. On the website, thebritishwhisperer.com, you can find a link to the webpage with full transcript of this episode and the links to the news articles I'm telling you about to exercise your English. And in this episode, I'm going to focus on a guide to translation. But... It's not done by a British person, but actually by an Italian famous writer, Italo Calvinos. Are you curious to know more? Well, stay tuned until the end to learn everything about this very special guide. So, Italo Calvinos' Guide to Translation. In a previously unpublished essay, the late master hails the miracle of transferring a text from one tongue to another. Well, as you might wonder, novels are like wine, in that some travel well and some travel badly. It's one thing to drink a wine in the place where it's produced and another to drink it thousands of kilometers away. Travelling well or badly for novels can depend on the matters of content or matters of form, that is, of language. It is usually said that the Italian novels most popular among foreigners are those with a vividly characterized local setting, especially in the South, which describe places the reader can visit and which celebrate Italian vitality as seen from abroad. I think this may once have been true, but it's no longer. First, because a local novel implies a totality of specific knowledge that foreign reader can't always grasp. And second, because a certain image of Italy as an exotic country is by now far from reality and from the interests of the public, as I might know. In other words, for a book to cross borders, there has to be something original about it and something universal that is precisely the opposite of a confirmation of well-known images of local leaders. Her language has the utmost importance, because to keep the reader's attention, the voice that speaks to them has to have a certain tone, a certain timbre and a certain liveliness. Current opinion says that the writer who writes in a neutral tone, who causes fewer problems of translation, travels better. But I think that this too is a superficial idea, because dull writing can have value only if the sense of dullness that it conveys has a poetic value, that is, if it creates a very personal dullness. <laughs> Otherwise, one feels no encouragement to read. Communication has to be established through the writer's particular accent, and this can happen on an everyday colloquial level, not unlike the liveliest and most brilliant journalism, or it can be a more intense, introverted, complex communication appropriate to literary expression. In short, for the translator, the problems to resolve are unending. In texts whose style is more colloquial, a translator who manages to grasp the right tone from the start can continue thanks to this momentum with an assurance that seems, though that has to seem easy. But translating, as you might know, is never easy. The transfer of a literary text, whatever its value, into another language always requires some type of miracle. We all know that poetry is, well, mostly untranslatable by definition. But true literature, including prose, works precisely in the untranslatable margins of every language. Literary translators are those who stake their entire being to translate the untranslatable. Those who write in a minority language, like Italian, sooner or later come to the bitter conclusion that the possibility of communicating rests on slender threads like spider webs. 
change merely the sound and order and the rhythm of the words and the communication fails. How many times reading the first draft of a translation of a text of mine, the translator showed me, have I been gripped by the sense of alienation from what I was reading? Was this what I had written? How could I have been so flat and insipid? Then, rereading my text in Italian and comparing it with translation, I saw that the translation was perhaps very faithful, but in my text a word was used with a hint of ironic intention that the translation did not pick up. A subordinate clause in my text paused rapidly while in translation it took on an unjustified importance and disproportionate weight. The meaning of a verb in my text was softened by the syntactical construction of the sentence, while in the translation it sounded like a peremptory statement. In other words, the translation communicated something completely different from what I had written. And these are all the things that I hadn't realized while writing, and that I discovered only rereading myself in relation to the translation. Curious, isn't it? Translation is the true way of reading a text. This is, I believe, had been said many times. I can add that, for an author, reflecting on the translation of our own text and discussing it with the translator is the true way of rereading oneself, of understanding that one has written and why. So, uh, if we compare this, you know, just with American English, um, perhaps in the United States people also speak and just like cut off, interrupt sentences, exclamation, locations with precise or without precise semantic content. But compared with Italian and French, who are used to starting sentences and finishing them, with the Germans who always put the verb at the end, and with the English, who usually construct very proper sentences, we can see that the Italians speak a language that tends to vanish continually into nothing, and if we had to transcribe it, we would have to make continuous ellipses of points. Now, in writing, the sentence has to come to an end, and so writing requires a use of language completely different from that of daily speech. Writers have to compose complete and meaningful sentences because these writers can't avoid. They always have to say something. Here then is the position of Italian writers. They are writers who use the Italian language in a way completely different from the politicians, completely different from the intellectuals, but they can't resort to current everyday speech because it tends to get lost in the inarticulate. That's why Italian writers always or almost always live in a, state, in a state of linguistic neurosis. They have to invent language in which they write before inventing what they write, which is actually quite complicated. In Italy, the relationship with the word is essential, not only for poets, but also for prose writers. More than in other great modern literatures, Italian literature had and has poetry at its center of gravity. Like the poets, Italian prose writers pay obsessive attention to the individual word and to the verse contained in their prose. If they don't have this attention of a conscious level, it means that they write as if in a raptus or in a distinctive or automatic poetry. The problematic sense of language is an essential element of the spirit of our time. Thus, Italian literature is a necessary component of great modern literature and deserves to be read and translated. Because Italian writers, contrary to popular opinion, are not euphoric, joyful, sunny, sometimes, and in most cases, they have depressive temperament with, with an ironic spirit. Italian writers can teach us to confront the depression, the evil of our time, the common condition of humanity in our time by defending ourselves with irony, with the grotesque configuration of the spectacle of the world. There are also writers who seem overflowing with vitality, but it's a vitality that is basically sad, a little bit bleak. That is why, however difficult it may be to translate Italian, it is worth the trouble to do so. 
because we live in the universal despair with the greatest joy possible. If the world is increasingly senseless, all we can do is to try to give it its style. So, <laughs> this is the end of this episode, dear listeners. Okay, thanks for joining me today. Um, I hope you enjoyed this uh, this podcast. And what is your approach to translation? How do you translate things? Do you think it's difficult to translate from one language to the other? Please let me know by commenting on Instagram or DM me or writing an email to the British Whisper at writeme.com. And if you enjoy my show, please hit subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts so you don't miss any other episode. And if you'd like to support me, please leave a rating and a review. And you can offer me a coffee on coffee. Link in my bio on Instagram or in my website, thebritishwhisper.com. And I hope you can take some valuable information from this episode and apply it to your English learning. Be sure to come back next week for a news episode. Until then, I'm Karatia and this is The British Whisper. Bye!